First of all, begin by saying good morning to everyone, and I'm humbled and thankful for the invitation to be with you this week. Looking forward to a great week, God willing we all live, and looking forward to God's blessings as He uses all of us in order to to uh, advance the cause of His kingdom in this congregation and in the lives of all of the young people that are going to be coming in and, and spending the week here. And um, hope that we find this as a time of spiritual refreshing, a time to equip ourselves with wisdom as we prepare ourselves and to to live in this world that we're living in. And I think that's been the, the announced theme for our, for our evening studies, and we're going to begin that this morning, and, and that is living in this present world. And so, as we equip ourselves to live in this present world, one of the important things that's necessary is that we have a biblical view of the world. You know, what is the, what is the world to you? Whenever you look at the world, what do you see? How do you perceive the world? You know, a lot of times I hear people talk about the world, and they just, well, I just don't know what's coming, what's happening to this old world. You know, a lot of times whenever we use the word old, we affectionately refer to something, but we imply something's wrong. Like, and if your name is Frank and you're an uncle, I apologize. Like, we'll say, that old Uncle Frank. Well, we speak affectionately of him, but we know Uncle Frank's got some problems. And so, we have an affinity towards him, but we'll acknowledge, you know, some things aren't right about old Uncle Frank. Well, a lot of times whenever we look at this old world and we talk about this old world, I just don't know what this old world is coming to. What I want us to understand this morning, what we want to walk away from this morning is that this old world ain't old Uncle Frank. It's not a place that we can have some affection towards, but yet acknowledge it's still got its problems. We're going to look this morning at some scriptures and look at some terms and try to illustrate a biblical view of this world so that whenever we walk out of this building and we go to live in this present world, we have a good understanding of just what it is that we're trying to live in. And we're going to look at a biblical view of the world. We want to let the Bible describe for us what the world is like. And hopefully we can impress upon our minds this morning the the actual horror that the world is. That the world is not a neutral place. And as some people like to say, well, the world is what you make it. No, the world has already been made what it is. And we have to accept that reality about the world and equip ourselves to be able to live in this world, to live righteous and godly and holy lives. Whenever we look at the definition of the world, if you look at it in a lexicon or someplace like that, the world is an order, a regular disposition and arrangement, that order of things which in consequence of and since the fall is alienated from God as manifested in and through the human race. Now a lot of times when we think of the world, we think of this big old ball that's suspended out in nothingness and we think of all of the material things of the world. But what we're talking about is not the world physically, but we're looking into the world and we want to look at, as it says here, the disposition and the arrangement and the order of things. You know, whenever we look at the world and the operations of the world, it seems that the world is very chaotic. But I want you to understand this morning, and I want to understand this morning, that there is an order to this world. There is an arrangement to this world. There is a disposition to this world for the world to accomplish the world's purpose. 
You know, it's not just a bunch of chaos out there and we kind of swim our way through it trying to make out of it what we can. But rather the world is a place that has order, it has a disposition, it has an arrangement, it has mechanisms, it has schemes, it has plans. Another word that I like to think of in thinking of the world is that a syst- the world is a system. A system is a set of principles or procedures according to which something is done, an organized scheme or method. As we're going to study this morning, there is a dominion over this world. There is a mind behind all of the mechanisms that we see in the world, and that mind is orchestrating those mechanisms in order to accomplish the purpose that it's desired, that it desires. So we're not living in a place that's neutral. We're not living in a place that's going to be what you make of it. We're living in a place that has a definite design, it has a definite scheme, it has a definite plan for you, for me, for our children, and for everyone that has ever breathed the air on this globe. In Genesis 1.31, after God created man and woman and placed them in the Garden of Eden, the capstone of His glorious creation, He looked at all that He created. He looked at everything He had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So God looked at the world with great pleasure. He didn't just look at the physical things, but He looked at the order of it. He looked at the arrangement of it. And it was something that was very pleasing to him because it was ordered and it was arranged after his will to accomplish his purpose and his glory. And he looked at it and he said, this is very good. When God looks at the world today, what does he say? Does he say it's very good? No, what he sees is something that is diametrically opposed to his initial creation. He sees all that's not ordered and arranged after his disposition to accomplish his schemes and his plans, but rather, as we read in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Sin entered into the world and corrupted the creation. Now, when we say that sin entered into the world, we're not talking about some mistakes here and some snafus here and things like that entered into the world. But whenever Paul is talking about sin entering into the world, he's talking about a power. He's talking about an infectious power that has permeated everything in God's creation. That's why whenever we look around, we see death, we see decay, we see rot in everything. Why is that? Why does that old fascia board on your house after a while begin to rot? (laughs) Well, it's the rain that does it. Well, yeah, but I'd submit it's sin that did that. God didn't create that board to rot. But rather because of the corrupting influence of sin in everything, we see death and we see decay. And what we have to understand is that same sin that the Apostle Paul is talking about here is the same sin that's in our flesh, as Paul talked about in Romans chapter 7. For I know that in me dwelleth no good thing, talking about his carnal nature. 
And so whenever we look at the world, we find that the world is infested with the power of sin. And because the world has taken on that quality and that nature, the world has a different order, a different scheme, a different arrangement than what God intended in the beginning. So what I want to do is put up some terms to help us frame what the world really is. Just some terms from, from, from some scriptures in, in Paul's writing and Peter's writing and in, in describing the world and try to set for ourselves a biblical view of what the world looks like. Because if we don't have a biblical view of what the world really is, then we're not going to understand the biblical reasons for why we do what we do to try to live in this world. The world is evil. Evil. That's a pretty strong term. (laughs) The Apostle Paul said concerning Jesus who gave Himself for our sins that He might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. What does the word evil mean? What does evil mean to you? Well, just this past week we saw an evidence of evil out in South Carolina where that young man went in and killed nine people in a church doing a Bible study. People look at that and they say, oh, that was evil. And we look at that and we see how horrendous that it is. And it, it, it solicits within us an emotional response. Evil is not something that we get... Oh, evil. But rather it's something that strikes at the very inner nerves of our soul. That's not something that's neutral. But rather it's something that has a specific plan. Just like that young man, he was evil. What was his purpose? It wasn't just to go out and do something wrong. He could have went out and done a lot of things that were wrong that really wouldn't have hurt and affected a whole lot of people. But the reason his actions are termed evil is because of the hurt that it inflicted on other people. And that's what the word evil means. The word evil, hurtful in effect and influence. Evil's design is to hurt And to inflict pain on other people. A word that you'll often see in connection with the word evil is the word malignant. Again, that's a word that we don't like to hear. Because anytime we hear the word malignant, what do we... I'll say it in a minute. Malignant, what do we associate it with? With cancer. And the killing effect of cancer. You see, that's what evil is. The word malignant means to be extremely severe and harmful. And so whenever Paul writes that this present world is evil, he doesn't say it with a shrug of the shoulders, but he says it in order to frame the world in a context that's going to help us to understand the importance of the deliverance that comes through Christ Jesus. And that's what the world is all about. The world is all about hurting you. You know, we sing the song, it's an unfriendly world. No, it's more than an unfriendly world. I know a lot of unfriendly people that don't try to hurt me. But evil purposefully tries to hurt and damage the souls of people. 1 John 5, verse number 19, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. The word wickedness here is the same Greek word that we get evil. And the word lieth means to lie outstretched. And so whenever we lie outstretched, that symbolizes or shows to me 
total submission or totally succumbing to something. You've just lost all strength and you just fall and you lie outstretched. Well, John's characterization of the world here is that the world lies outstretched in evil. And so whenever we look at the purposes, whenever we look at the schemes, whenever we look at the order, the arrangement, the procedures of this world, it's all designed to hurt you and to hurt the ones that you love. Oh, no, I think you're going overboard. I think that's just a little bit too harsh. No, that's not. That's the biblical truth of the world. The world is evil. The world is corrupt. Second Peter 1 and in verse number 4, Peter says, "...whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust." Corruption. Again, Corruption is really not a word that we talk a lot about unless we're talking about government. <laughs> you know, well, there's a lot of corruption in government. Well, whenever we talk about corruption in government, we talk about people doing underhanded deals and, you know, money going here and money going there and, you know, but that's not the corruption necessarily that the Bible talks about. The word corruption means to decay, to ruin, to bring the bringing or being brought into a worst state. So the apostle says here, having escaped corruption in the world. There's corruption in this world. Well, what does that tell me? Well, by understanding corruption, that means that the world is trying to bring me and bring you into a worse state. It talks about decay and ruin. Driving down here from Arkansas yesterday, I saw a lot of corruption on the side of the road. Death, decay, and ruin. And the apostle says that that's what is in the world. Well, who, who is the world interested in having this corrupting influence on? You and me. You and me. And the apostle says here concerning those that have escaped it. Well, how do things corrupt? Well, before things can corrupt, things have to lose their life. The, the decay and the ruin process of this body starts in earnest whenever the life is gone from this body. And you know what the world tries to do is to sap the life from you so that you will decay and ruin spiritually. Notice what Peter says here. Escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. We're going to talk about lust this week. Because lust are those desires and those things that the world preys upon in order to try to get us to be a parasite on this world. And while we're a parasite on this world, then what is happening is we're sucking from the world, but the world is sucking life from us. And as the world sucks life from us, it's bringing us into a worse state. It's bringing us into decay and ruin. Have you ever thought about the world trying to sap life from you, to bring you in a worse state, into ruin and to decay. You know, whenever we look at the word evil, whenever we look at the word corrupt, we're not, we're not uh, forming here favorable opinions about the world, are we? We're not forming neutral opinions about the world, are we? 
Hopefully you're sitting there and I'm standing here and we're understanding the challenges that are outside this wall. That when we walk out the door, the world's not going to be what we make of it. The world is trying to make us into something. Through the evil and the corruption that is in it. Peter also tells us that the world is polluted. Polluted. That's a term that really fosters up positive emotions, isn't it? Polluted. Again, in 2 Peter 2.20, having escaped the pollutions of the world. And so Peter talks about the corruption of the world, and here he talks about the pollution of the world. The word pollution means foulness or contamination. We live in a foul, contaminated world. Think about pollution for just a moment. We have a big push in our culture, and I think rightfully, we know we want to keep the world clean. Now, I think that some people go to the extremes with it, but we want to try to keep the world reasonably clean. And we have an attitude towards pollution. And we see pictures of third world countries where people are living among their own sewage. Where their house is here. And there's an open trench in front of their house with the sewer of the village flowing down through the streets. And we look at that and we think, how can anyone live that way? Whenever we look at the world, we need to understand and frame the world in that regard. What do we do with pollution? We try to isolate pollution. Whenever a city builds a landfill, they don't build the landfill in downtown, do they? They go outside of town. They go out a place away from everybody else to dump all of their trash and all of their filth. Whenever you go to the hospital and somebody has an infectious disease and they're contaminated with a disease, what do you do? You put them in isolation. You put them off over here. And we wouldn't think of going to those places for fear of being having the disease that might be present there. How many of us, whenever we're looking for a place to build our home, we well, let's go out and look around the landfill. Maybe we can find some cheap property out there. Or, or, or how about that nuclear plant that melted down the other day? I bet we can get a good bargain there. We don't go there. Why? Because we know there's contamination, there's foulness. And what we need to understand is we live in a world full of contamination and foulness. And that contamination and foulness is part of the order and the arrangement of this world to do you harm and to do me harm and to bring us into a worse state. Not only is the world evil, not only is it corrupt, not only is it polluted, but here we see why. Satan, as referred to by Jesus as the prince of this world, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2, Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. And the word prince here means one first in power, authority, and dominion. That whenever we look at the world, we need to understand that the world is under the power, the authority, and the influence of Satan. Satan has this power, he has this dominion, not because he's defeated God but because the world has given him that power. 
Satan's ruin is pronounced in the Bible. His demise and his destruction is foretold, and you and I can have confidence in that fact. But for right now, the world that we live in is under the influence of Satan, the prince of this world. He's the one first in power, authority, and dominion. You think the world's a neutral place? You think the world's kind of like old Uncle Frank? Satan is the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. The word God means supreme divinity. The supreme divinity of this world is Satan. Not because he has usurped God's authority, but because the world and in its sin has given him that authority and set him up as someone would set up an idol back in the Old Testament times and fall down and worship the idol instead of the true God. And so whenever we look beyond these walls, we're looking at a system, we're looking at an order, we're looking at an arrangement that is being ordered by and used by Satan, the prince of this world, the god of this world. Well, what does the Bible tell us about him? We looked at the world, evil, corruption, pollution, kind of frames the world for us and gives us an understanding of the nature of the world. But what about Satan? Again, sometimes we refer to Satan, that old devil, that old devil. Well, what about that old devil? He's a murderer and a liar. A murderer and a liar. Again, notice how that all of these terms that the Bible writers are using to describe the world and to describe Satan are terms that really solicit within us a strong emotional response. How many of us like murderers and liars? (laughs) Hi, my name's Jay Lloyd. I'm a murderer and a liar. What are you going to think about me? Hey, come on over and have dinner with us. No. Honey, gather the children. We're out of here. Year of your father the devil, the lust of your fathers ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. He is a murderer and a liar. And I bet by looking at that picture right there, that makes you feel uncomfortable. And that's just a man. That's not even Satan. The beast you see in front of you is someone that Satan himself created. Through this man's lying and his murderous agenda, the propaganda that that, that he spewed throughout all of his country to turn that country and its military against millions and millions of innocent people. Very rarely do you hear him referred to as that old Adolf Hitler. He was something, wasn't he? No, but whenever you peer into those two eyes, you're peering into the eyes of pure unadulterated evil. Satan is a predatory beast. 
Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. That little old kitty cat. Imagine the fear of facing that. But better yet, imagine the fear that you're just walking through some place where you know that that exists. And that's the characterization that Peter gives to us concerning Satan. Number one, he's an adversary. He ain't on your side. And he's not neutral about you. If he is an adversary, he is against you and against me. And so when we look at this world and the order and the arrangements and the procedures and the systems and whatever other words that we can come up with, we need to know that they're being orchestrated by someone who is against us. Not only is he adversarial, he has a ravenous and an insatiable appetite. He can't get enough. He can't get enough. You see the graphic picture that Peter paints here of Satan. When he's got one soul, he immediately begins to look for the next soul. He's not a hunter of convenience. He's not someone who will just hunker down in the bushes and wait for something to come to him, but he walks about. As he says up here, walking about, seeking. He is active in his pursuit. He's not like some of those old animals you'll see on uh, all these animal shows, like especially like fish. They'll just rest at the bottom of the ocean, and then they'll just sit there and wait for something to come swimming by it, and then they'll get it. But we're talking about something here who goes out, who goes searching, who lies in wait in search of the prey. And he seeks whom he may devour. He is destructive in his purpose. Destructive in his purpose. You know, this is a very good characterization of the world. I like to think of the world as a jungle. Think of a world as a jungle. When you're walking through a jungle, say you're walking through a jungle by yourself, what are you concerned with? Are you just walking through and... Whistling, I can't whistle right now. You're whistling and you're just looking around and you're noticing all the scenery and how everything gets. Or are you walking intensely with a great sense of danger? What was that? What was that? See, that's the type of world that we live in. See, I think sometimes we're whistling through the jungle. We're whistling through the jungle when in fact we need to understand the nature of the jungle and the nature of the dangers that are there. Is the world neutral? No. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. That's pretty strong. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Well, why do I become God's enemy if I have friendship with the world? Because the world is the enemy of God. 
That's why. The word enmity there, it means hatred. 1 John 2, 5, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world and God are mutually exclusive. Because one is trying to undo what the other wants to accomplish. You see, whenever we look at the world, it's important that we frame the world in this context. Because the way that we frame the world is going to determine how we're going to live in the world. And we've got to understand everything that is out there. And sometimes it seems so distant and so far from us. That's not the world I live in. Because when I go home, I've got Bible verses hanging on my wall and the people that I'm around are nice people and, I, you know, and, and everything. Well, that's fine and that's good. But we always have to live with the understanding that behind all of the niceties, you know, behind that nice little bush could be the ravenous lion. And understand the imminency of danger in this world. You know, when you turn on that TV and you're letting the world flow into your home, understand the imminency of danger. Whenever you go out and you associate with people maybe that that aren't Christians and put yourself in... Understand how close danger can be. You know, that's why those of us that are parents, whenever we're, our, our children get frustrated, because we can always see what something will lead to. <laughs> we can always see what something can lead to. I know. Why do you always have to see the bad in everything? Why do you, don't you trust me? Don't you trust me? Sure, hon, I trust you, but I don't trust this world. I don't trust this world. It's not a matter of me trusting you. It's a matter of, hey, I've been through the jungle. I've been through the jungle. I've seen the carcasses by the wayside. I've seen the ruin. I've seen the decay. I've seen the destruction that can come about in this world. So it's not about me not trusting you. I don't trust this world. Well, what's this world coming to? Again, that's a phrase that we'll use a lot with the world. Well, I just don't know what the world is coming to. Yeah, we we know exactly what the world is coming to. The Bible tells us. The heavens and the earth which are now and the, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. The earth also and the works that are therein, it's all going to be burned up. It's all going to be burned up. You know, and we shouldn't stand by in amazement whenever we see the world go the way that the world goes. It pains us to see the cultural shifts that we see taking place in our nation today, but should it surprise us? No. Shouldn't surprise us. What else should we expect from a group of people that want to take God out of everything? But you see, I'm more concerned about not the U nation of the United States, but the nation of God's people. The world is going to be the world. Judgment is already pronounced upon the world. You and I have an obligation to live in this world in a certain way. And that's what we want to focus on. So, the world is an order or a system alienated from God and against God. 
We are playing on the enemy's turf. We're among the enemy. It's under the authority of a predatory mastermind who is a murderer and a liar. A murderer and a liar. This mastermind orchestrates the world system to accomplish the eternal ruin of every creature inhabiting its domain. You know, like on The Wizard of Oz, whenever they finally get there and they pull back the curtain and they see this white-haired old man in there just flipping switches and pulling strings. Didn't look that bad. But you know what? When you pull back the curtain of this world, you're not going to find a white old man flipping switches and pulling strings. You're going to find a creature, you're going to find a being that would strike horror and terror in you at the very sight of Him. He's the one that's doing the doing. He's the one that's orchestrating what we see in the world today. The world is reserved for judgment and will ultimately perish. So that's the world we live in. But for now... We got to live here. We got to live here. You see, what we need to understand is that Satan doesn't have to get us to pull a gun and go out and shoot nine people studying their Bibles. He doesn't have to do that to ruin us. That's an extreme manifestation of evil. But all he has to do is just to attach us to this world. Get us attached to this world. Suck the life of us spiritually. To bring about decay and to bring about ruin. And so again, what we want to look at this week are some things, and beginning this afternoon, some things that will help us to live in this present world. But first of all, this morning, I want us to understand the nature of the world. Understand where we live. And understand how that in this world, it's all about your demise and my demise. And I wish I could give you a better lesson, on a more uplifting lesson on the first Sunday morning of a meeting. However, this kind of frames the discussion for the rest of the week. Because we're going to talk about some things and you might, well, that, that sounds a little extreme. You know, that's, well, when you look at where we're living, is it really that extreme? When you look at where we're living, is it really that necessary? You see, we're only going to do the things that we think are necessary. And so the lesson this morning is to try to give us a point of reference so that what we study throughout the world see the necessity of it. Again, it's just like our children. They don't see the necessity of a lot of things that we ask them to do. And it's because they don't have an appreciation of the world as we understand it. And so hopefully we can open our eyes to the darkness that we will embrace and desire the light. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, Satan is seeking your ruin. And outside of Christ, you are ruined. Because you're a sinner. God is perfect and you're not. God is perfect and complete in His holiness and righteousness. And I'm going to guess that there's a time in your life when you sinned. And probably you do not realize or did not realize just exactly the effect of that sin. That sin brought you under the wrath and indignation of God. Oh, but preacher, it was just one sin. How many sins did it take to turn the world into what it is today? By one man's offense, 
One man's offense, one sin. You see, God is so holy and so perfect in His nature and in His character that one sin, that one sin brought about everything that you see going on around you. So imagine the effect of one sin on your soul. And you may look around this building and say, yeah, but I see other people in here that have sinned as good as they are. Well, the difference is, number one, you're not accountable to these people. They have no wrath. They have no indignation. They have no judgment for you. But you're going to stand before God. And another thing is, they are not perfect. They don't claim to be perfect. But the truth about them is that they're washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we beseech you to do the same. To have your sins washed away. To repent of your sins and confess Jesus as Lord and be buried with Him in baptism so that the benefit of Christ's death can be your benefit, being freed from sin. Or if you are here this morning and you are a Christian, it may be something that we've talked about has uh, touched your heart. That the Word somehow has convicted you this morning that, you know, I really haven't had an appreciation for the way the world really is. And maybe I've been a little bit licentious in my living. Maybe I haven't been as focused spiritually as I ought to be. And maybe I've become a friend of the world. And you desire to repent and to come out of that. And you desire the assistance of this congregation with their prayers, their counsel, and their support. We'd be glad to help you. So if you will come as we stand and sing.